Good morning, Freeway. How are we? Good to hear. Good Friday. As the sun kind of continues to dawn uh, over the earth, um, making its way across the Pacific Ocean, I think, towards us, creeping west, uh, our brothers and our sisters in places like um, Tonga and Samoa and New Zealand have already gathered this morning, have already gathered to worship and to remember the death of a man some 2,000 years ago. And as more and more countries move into the light of the sun, Australia now and I think Japan and in North and South Korea, China, Bangladesh, places like Nepal and India, Pakistan and the Middle East, Germany, France, Italy, Belgium, Spain, the UK, Iceland, Ireland, Portugal, North and South America. And I think we're through. Over 2.38 billion people will gather to worship, to sing and to remember the death of a man that took place over 2,000 years ago. And it won't matter what kind of country they live in. It won't matter if it's a, like a direct democracy or a, or, or a representative democracy or, or whether it's socialism or communism, whether it's a monarchy or a constitutional monarchy, whether it's an oligarchy or an autocracy, all around the world, over 2.83 billion people will gather to worship and remember the death of a man that took place over 2,000 years ago. And in places like the Ukraine, where it's roughly 2.30 a.m. in the morning this morning, but later today, some 32 million people will gather in blown-up churches to remember and give thanks and sing about a man who died 2,000 years ago in places like China, in underground houses hidden away and in, and in the um, official churches, an estimated 100 million Christians will gather just like this in worship to remember the death of a man some 2,000 years ago. And we gather here today like them to remember the death of a man who took place some 2,000 years ago. We gather because like millions of other people, we've begun or we've become convinced that the death of that man on the cross was a death like no other death. Like hundreds of thousands of people were put to death on crosses by the Romans and the Persians and people before them. But the fact that you can say the cross and we know who was on that cross speaks to the uniqueness of this death. Jesus' death on a cross was not just another senseless killing by the Romans or an expedient way for religious leaders to get rid of someone who'd made their lives very uncomfortable, very, very awkward. It was more than just a heroic act, some, some kind of ultimate display or demonstration of love. Jesus' death on the cross was indeed the wisdom and the power of God destroying the power of sin and darkness in the world, in the cross, something cosmic took place. In the cross, Jesus redefined how humanity actually relates to God. In the cross, moved by the perfection of holy love, God in Jesus substituted himself for sinners. And in doing so, took at least three things from us on the cross. It's not an exhaustive list, 
But it's a list that I've just kind of pulled out of the passage that we read this morning in Luke's, Luke's gospel as we read it from. We, we, we came in early to get context and that, but Luke's all about the injustice, the utter, utter injustice of this death. So as the sun rises on Good Friday, and before we kind of get into our day, and that's why we meet early, early on Good Friday, so that we can be shaped by uh, some thoughts here. Three things that were taken from you on Good Friday that make the death of Jesus unlike any other death that's ever taken place and worthy of our gathering, worthy of us coming together with billions of other people uh, in gratitude towards Jesus. The first words that are spoken from the cross are actually words of forgiveness. All four Gospels record the crucifixion of Jesus and they give scant details to it. Like uh, they just say, and they crucified him. Like they don't go into any of the details. Like you just had to mention crucifixion back then and people, people knew the images were there. You didn't need to describe it. But while they give us scant details about the actual crucifixion, what they do record for us is some of the things that Jesus said from the cross and they're quite extraordinary things because historic records tell us that most people on the cross when they're being crucified actually spew out vile contempt and abuse towards their their executioners because because the pain and the trauma of crucifixion actually drives them crazy with pain if you've ever had severe chronic Pain, you know, you kind of know how angry and how unhuman it makes you at times. And it's not that Jesus wasn't experiencing this pain. He is, and we know that Jesus is actually capable of feeling the full range of human emotions, the full range of pain. He is not supernaturally protected from it. The Gospels tell us things like tired and weary he was. Tired and weary, he had to take a rest at a well in Samaria. Deeply grieved about the death and the loss of a friend, he, he weeps at a funeral. Moved with compassion, Jesus is constantly ministering to people, and pain is not excluded from this list of emotions and feelings. However, in his pain, Jesus is not consumed by self-pity and, 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 and anger and rage. Rather, incredibly, he is concerned and focused on others. He actually says to John, hey, take care of my mum. This is Jesus in this instant recognizing the purpose of the cross. The purpose of the cross, why he's here, why he's suffering is forgiveness of sins. Right at the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him and he cries out, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You might not think that you're, you're, that you're all that bad, that you don't need your sins taken away, that you don't need forgiveness. But the Bible is clear. This is the problem. We are all sinful, all condemned by that sin. And our only hope is that somebody would come along on our behalf and deal with it. Now on the cross, Jesus can ask for the forgiveness of sins because he is the place where the offense of sins will be dealt with. Jesus becomes the lightning rod for God's judgment. And forgiveness was released through his suffering and his death on the cross for you. On the cross, Jesus takes your sin and guilt from you and he puts it on himself so that you could receive forgiveness from God. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the 
one of the great exchanges at the cross. God has taken the wages of your sin from you and extended forgiveness towards you. In 1 John 2, 2, we read that he, Jesus, is the atonement for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And Paul writes that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This is a plan. This is not something that we just sprung up and thrown on him. He takes our sins from us and places them on himself. He becomes sin. Now that's great news for us. The cross is the place where sin is taken and forgiveness is offered. But now for Jesus, he is the object of God's response towards sin. And look how it plays out. Darkness fills the land. God's wrath is covering and manifesting itself at the cross. And it's pouring itself out on Jesus. The second thing that Jesus takes from us is the wrath of God. His anger, his provoked anger towards sin. His judgment of sin. And Jesus does more than just take ownership of your sin. He takes responsibility for it. We don't like the idea of God's anger and wrath. It does not make for attractive, nice sermon material. However, the Bible, again, is also very clear that, God, that, that sin has provoked God's anger. In Exodus 32.10, says this, that God burns with white, hot anger towards sin, with, with wrath and rage towards sin. Now, Sin is not merely the bad things that we do to each other, like we stole our neighbor's bike or we punched our sister in the throat or um, cheated on our spouse or we violated or abused someone. These things are all kind of like the symptoms of sin. These are the activities that sin permits, gives life to. Sin is opposition to God. Sin is, is always decreational. It turns God's good order into chaos. That's why it takes a creational God to bring life back to death, one whose power turns chaos into order to restore it. Sin at its core is rejecting God's loving rule and claim over your life. Sin is saying to God that we have no need of him. We would rather take the glory that he deserves and we would rather make much of ourselves. We would rather take the things that he has created to give to us as gifts than to go and to cause us to marvel at his goodness, at his love, at his thoughtfulness. And we take them and we marvel and love at how we can control those things and how we can use them and how we abuse them. Sin is the degodding of God and the enthroning of self and this is the great blasphemy. This is what brings the wrath of God. This is the one thing that we are not qualified for. We are not qualified to take the place of God. So it, it, it enslaves us. But it also condemns us under God's just response to sin, of separation from God and of death. Sin provokes God's anger because it's decreated what he has created. It's made ugly what he made good and perfect. It's replaced blessing with curse. It's replaced intimacy with God and each other with separation and distance. And we know things like shame and guilt and blame instead of, instead of beauty and love and, and intimacy. We need to not fall into the mistake of making God out to be like a Disney character. He's not like that at all. He is 
angry, being provoked to anger because of sin and, and, and will rightly, justly do something about it. Now, just in case you're sitting here thinking, well, you know, I'm not that, that bad, I'm not that sinful, I've never really done anything too bad. Ask yourself against what standard are you good? Your drug dealer next door neighbor? Your best mate who cheats on his wife? Your workmate who steals from the job site? Like against what standard are we, are we claiming our goodness? Are we not deserving of God's wrath? Jesus was a man 2,000 years ago who never sinned, never lied, never was disrespectful to his mum, never treated a person as an object, never took someone's life, never considered himself above God, even though he was God. He lived as we should live in joyful, glad submission to God. And that's what qualifies him to stand in our place, to take our wrath, to forgive our sin. That's your standard, and that's, that's the bar. And if you can jump over that bar without knocking it off, then you don't need to be here. You can go. Get on with Easter. Leave right now. God's wrath has no place to land on you. But I'm staying because that's not me. I'm someone who has placed my authority above God's. I'm someone who has made God's stuff a greater desire in my life than, than God himself. I'm someone in need of this cross because that rage is mine to encounter for my participating in destroying what God made beautiful, for my willful rebellion against his claim on my life until Jesus takes it from me at the cross and turns me from a rebel into a child, brings me into the family the great exchange, my sin for his life, my condemnation for his righteousness, we say, for his blessing, for his acceptance. That's why the cross is good news, because of what Jesus took from me, from what he took from you. And Luke tells us that between the sixth hour and the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land. And throughout the Bible, darkness is used to represent a condition of, a, of the human heart. It's sinful, it's blind state. A condition of helplessness. And darkness is also used to, to represent the manifestation of God's judgment. Darkness filled the land in Egypt in Exodus 10, 21 to 23, just before God executes his judgment on them. Isaiah, Amos, Job speak of the day of the Lord, his day of judgment as being deep darkness. At the cross, darkness fills the land. For on the cross, Jesus is taking the wrath of God. He's bearing the judgment of God towards sin. He's absorbing it on your behalf. Jesus speaks seven words from the cross, three before the darkness and three after the darkness. The words in between he speaks during this period, the words in between those two, this period of darkness, are not recorded in Luke, but they're actually recorded in Matthew's gospel. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lima Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus refers to God as God. Because everywhere else, he rather scandalously calls God his Father. That's the deep, intimate, eternal, loving relationship that they have the reason why he's referring to him now as God is because the nature of their relationship has changed. They still have a relationship. It's unbroken. But it's just now very different. 
Jesus is facing God as judge. Think about this. For three hours, God's anger and judgment is bearing down on the cross on Jesus. Jesus, who knew no sin, never participated in any rebellion, always loved the Father, and not just in his time on earth, but in time, in eternity past, is now the object of his rage, is now the object of his anger towards sin. Because he has stepped in. He has become sin on our behalf, and now God's wrath is pouring out towards him. And now Jesus, too, now experiences what sin does. It separates, it excludes. Now Jesus is like us. He knows what it is to be separate from God because of sin. The perfect love is severed by sin, and God now turns his face from him. We sang, we sang it in that, in that, in that kind of modern hymn. There's no language for this, and that's maybe why Luke just says, and darkness filled the land. But here's, what ha- here's what's happening. And when Matt Chandler, was, when he spoke about this, he said, this, this should ruin you and fill you with joy, inexpressible joy all at the same time. Jesus is taking away God's wrath from you so that he is destroyed, not you. So that he is crushed, not you. So that he is abandoned, not you. So that he is separated, so that you can be brought in. John writes, John the Apostle writes in 1 John 4, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, and that just means to to fully satisfy the demands and, and set them aside of judgment. He has been the propitiation of or for our sins. Jesus changes how we relate to God. Jesus changes changes how God views us, moves towards us. It's all grace. Jesus has taken sin, taken judgment, and now he offers relationship in its place. He offers intimacy. He offers closeness, which is what brings us to the third thing that Jesus takes from us on the cross. Distance. Jesus takes away the distance that exists between us and God. This is the gap that sin has made between a holy God and a sinful people. It's why Jesus experienced his own distance that we just talked about between himself and the Father. And all throughout the Bible, we see how sin separates us from God. We saw how in the beginning it drove us out of the Garden of Eden with the flaming swords and things put in place so that nobody could go back into this intimate presence of God. But God does not leave us alone in this, though. He gives us ways to, to know that he is still here. He gives us ways to, 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 a, to approach him appropriately, safely. The whole sacrifice system is set up for that very reason. And, and the temple is the one place where we, where we see God's presence and grace still remain in, in here with us. The temple was designed with that in mind that sinful people would be able to approach a holy God and still know his presence and still have relationship with him. It had a room in it called the Holy of Holies, and that is where the presence of God was said to dwell. It was a perfect cube, and on one wall was a curtain that was 30 foot high and 30 foot wide, an inch thick, and it separated God from his people, and it hung there uh, to remind the people that, that sin kept them from intimate uh, continuous and personal relationship with God. No one went into that room apart from the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. He would go in there and he would sprinkle 
blood on the altar to symbolize repentance for sin on behalf of the people of God. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into that room with a rope tied around his ankle because if there was any inappropriate approach from the priest as he went into the presence of God, he died immediately and they just kind of dragged you out and got another bloke to try. There is a gap, there is a distance between God and humanity. But on the cross, Jesus is the high priest. And on the cross, Jesus is the blood. And on the cross, it's Jesus who dies for the atonement of sins for the world. All this ritual, all this sacrifice, all this stuff that's leading up and pointing to something is now replaced with Jesus. And we read that at that moment, the curtain in the temple is ripped from top to bottom in a dramatic moment where God says, and Jesus says, it is finished. Access, full access to God. The curtain ripped apart to say, on the cross, through Christ, access to God, intimacy with God, now available. Jesus has brought us near to God. Ephesians, Paul writes in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ through the cross. Good Friday is, because, is good because Jesus has taken stuff from us. He's taken our, our, our penalty of sin and offered forgiveness. He has taken wrath and in its place offered acceptance and mercy. And he has taken the distance between us and God so that we can know God personally, intimately. And it is a reality that does not fade. It is a reality that does not diminish us. And it grows brighter and brighter every day that we step into it. Let's pray. Loving God, we do pause on Good Friday. We just slow ourselves down and think about the day a man hung on a cross 2,000 years ago. A death like no other death. A death that actually achieved things. A death that did something in the universe that changed who we are and what we are. Changed how we understood our place in, the, in, this, in this world. Changed how we, how we feel we need to approach God, know God, be in relationship with God. It's not anything that we do. It's not anything that we work towards, but it's, it's stuff that you have done for us, that you have taken from us, that, that these barriers, these things that keep us from you are now all taken in the cross and, and we can know you and we can come to you through Christ. This is the heartbeat. This is the story of Christianity. That God humbles himself, that God humiliates himself, that God moves towards us. To, to, to recreate what sin has decreated, to make us new, to give us new life, to take away death, that we would, as we will see on Sunday, know uh, the eternal qualities of the other side of the cross. We give you thanks and praise for that this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.